0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King Each week I'll review one entry In the Bibliography of Stephen King In the Chronological Order of Publication And today I will be discussing It Chapter 2 But first I want to take a few moments To talk about um, Some news That has just come up Over the last couple days And that is casting for CBS's All Access, um, The Stand, which is going to be directed by Josh Boone. So it had been hinted at, it had been speculated and rumored, um, but it is now official that Whoopi Goldberg will be joining the cast as Mother Abigail. So that is, that is big casting. Um, personally, for me, I... Uh, I don't know how I feel about that casting. Well, I should say, no, I don't like that casting. Um, nothing against Whoopi. I just, at this point in in her career, I, I just, I think that Whoopi has just become Whoopi. It's going to be hard for me to not see her as the role that she has played for the last 20 years, which is, you know, herself. Um, it's a tough role for anybody to play, um, or to be cast in, this is just not what I expected. Um, but that is, that, that's one of the big ones. Um, on the other side of things is, of course, from, from Mother Abigail, is Randall Flagg. And this was a big question. Who is going to play the walking dude? Who is going to step into those cowboy boots uh, previously uh, worn by Jamie Sheridan in the 1994 ABC TV miniseries? Um, Those boots were almost walked in by Matthew McConaughey uh, before he strolled across town to uh, play another incarnation of this character, um, Walter, the man in black from The Dark Tower, but we almost had him at his uh, most iconic, which was uh, Flag, But no, we're not going to get Matthew McConaughey. We shouldn't have expected Matthew McConaughey because you don't go from starring in an A-list, big-budget movie, which is what it was supposed to be, to a uh, streaming TV miniseries, which I'm sure will have a, a pretty big budget. Um, but no, we uh, have <laughs> uh, Alexander Skarsgard not Bill Skarsgård, but Alex Skarsgård, um, who most people might know from uh, the show True Blood. He recently won an Emmy for his work on Big Little Lies, and I'll say this. I did not expect this casting, but I do not mind this casting. In fact, I can see this casting, because what do you need to be Randall Flagg? What do you need in a, in a character that is... Um, one of Stephen King's most famous villains. Um, You need someone that's going to be captivating and charming, someone that can lure you in and tempt you. But as soon as you're close, he smiles at you, he can chew your face off. All right? That is definitely something in Alexander Skarsgård's wellhouse, wheelhouse. Um, That is... I think the essential quality to flag, I think that he'll be able to play that unhinged mania um and the danger that comes along with it. I think he'll play the part really, really well. The only thing that I just can't see, and I hate getting caught up in superficial stuff like this, is the hair. Um I I, I really hope they don't they don't make his hair that dark brown black Raven's hair. I really hope that they don't. Because um I just think it would look strange on him. But other than that, that's some big casting. And uh, the rest of the cast is filling out. and um, you know, it's definitely something to to keep our eyes on. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, a trailer once uh, once the filming starts underway. Up next, uh, we have some Doctor Sleep news. All right. I mean, Dr. Sleep was gonna be be here before we know it. Um, and this past Sunday, the second final trailer has dropped now there's only been two trailers and there does not seem to be a lot of fanfare uh and you would think that there would be more fanfare for the sequel to th- what is considered the greatest horror movie of all time and just one of the greatest movies of all time period um and despite this they're I mean, the trailers have come out. I have liked the trailers. I don't know if there's a lot of buzz around the trailers, but there just seems to be something lacking. There's a there's a there's a crackle in the air that I I expected that isn't there, um, and I that makes me worry um, not about the quality about the, of the movie, just about the interest in the movie. Now, with that said, I liked the first trailer. I liked the second trailer, and I and more inclined to trust Mike Flanagan. Uh, I, I really, as I've been on record saying, I really enjoyed what he did with Hill House, and I think that he has the goods to give us what I want in Doctor Sleep. The question is, what I want out of Doctor Sleep, is that what mass audiences want? Because I am a fan of the book. I understand what Kane was doing with the book. I like what he was doing with the book. I understand why some people might not like that. Um, And if so, if they adhere to the structure of the book and the plot of the book, is that going to be palatable to audiences that want a more straightforward and linear sequel to The Shining? Well, the fact that Warner Brothers is allowing uh, uh, Mike Flanagan to play in this, this world with the iconography of the the most famous horror movie of of all time, yes, there's going to be a very clear visual link between these two movies. Um, That's been very heavily referenced in the trailer. There's more references, and not even references or homages, but um, there's been more meticulous detail to paint um, the picture of the original in a way that King didn't try to. Um, He really just took the concept of this is Danny Torrance. He was once a child. Now he's a man. What is his life like? Um, he understands that he he's not really just defined by this one terrible winter that he spent um, in Colorado. Uh, it definitely affected him, traumatized him, but not every aspect of his life needs to discuss it. Um, it can be with him without being overtly discussed. It looks like Flanagan um, is placing Danny within the world of The Shining um, in in much greater emphasis than uh, Stephen King did um, in the book. Now, in the book, spoiler alert for the end of the book, the Overlook blows up. Okay, um, and spoiler alert for Doctor Sleep. Um, in the end of Doctor Sleep, spoiler alert they go to the location where the Overlook had stood. Now, spoiler alert for Shining the movie, there, uh, it's still standing. All right, it, it did not explode. And according to this trailer, it has been condemned. So this allows our characters to go to the Overlook, to the physical location of the, the Overlook, and wander its halls and encounter its ghosts and walk through room 237. Um, and through the hedge maze. So one of the things that I had wished that we had gotten from the book was... more of a recreation of the Overlook. I, what if there had been some astral projection of the Overlook that Danny was able to lure the True Knot into? Well, it looks like he's going to do that, except it's just the Overlook. He's going to take the trauma of his childhood um, and, and weaponize it against these monsters and actually have a showdown within the Overlook Hotel. I am totally for that, and it's unpredictable, and it's like the the, the, the better devil you know Um, Then the devil you don't. And Rose the Hat had better watch out if the ghosts of the Overlook rally around Danny Torrance. Um, That'll be really interesting. Now, here's a question for you. If the ghosts at the Overlook are going to make their appearances again, and this is Danny's first time going back to the Overlook since um, the conclusion of the movie, there is a more recent ghost that is wandering the halls, and that is his father. I have not heard of Jack Nicholson making an appearance, um, but then again, Jack Nicholson doesn't need to make an appearance. All they would need to do is a CGI Jack Nicholson. I mean, this day and age, I mean, that's that's yeah, that, that's something that's totally. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a good idea, but it's something I can see a studio saying, "Well, we got to do it." I mean, he's and I. <laughs> He's an important part of of horror cinema um, for his role as Jack Torrance. And the picture of him pushing through the door, here's Johnny, is you don't get much more iconic than that. So to do a sequel without Jack Nicholson through the eyes of the studio, I can see him saying, well, we need to include him somehow. Is he going to be a CGI character? A fuzzy CGI ghost that we see at the end of the hallway waving to Danny. Does he attack Rose the Hat with an axe? Something like that. I don't know. I don't know, but we shall see. Not that much longer of a wait. Okay, guys. So, um, I just want to get to the meat and potatoes of this episode. So, IT Chapter 2 came out. And like I had said in the previous episode in which I concluded my review of Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez's um, Lock and Key... I was looking ahead at, at this episode and looking ahead at the release of it, and I mentioned that I didn't see a lot of buzz around it chapter two. This was before the reviews were coming in. I stated that I, there didn't seem to be a lot of social media chatter about it. There weren't seemed to be a lot of memes about it. Um, I don't know when that first one came out, the the, the teaser, the poster, And a trailer, that shit blew up. That was big. People were excited. And maybe it's just not new anymore, you know? I mean, you can only um, make a first impression once, right? And that's what that movie did. It made a huge first impression, saying, I am the remake, or not even the remake, but I am the cinematic adaptation that will remind you of the 1990 TV miniseries that you grew up with. And Oh, by the way, we're going to do it better than that. Um, and I, I still think they did. I, I really, I enjoyed my time with it. Chapter one, I have some flaws, some, some issues with it. Chapter one, which I'm actually going to get into with my review of it. chapter two, but it was an enjoyable hang, which is a funny thing to say about a horror movie, but, it was an enjoyable hang. Um, and so I, I wasn't sure what to expect for the second one. Well, much like the, 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 the first one, um, I wanted to make it special. Um, so my wife and I, we uh, went back to the same drive-in. It was a beautiful night. And don't worry, I'm not going to give a 20-minute long review of the drive-in experience like I did last time. But it was a beautiful night. It was a very nice ride. It was uh, just really, um, it was a crisp night you know, we got there, stars were out, clear skies, um, and when you get there, you know, it, it just, you, you, feel like you're plopped down in the 1950s, um, the, the little diner on the inside, uh, you know, has just really good burgers that are given to you, and foil and, um, great dogs with a, with a nice snap, um, so it's just great. And you sit in the car and you're again, settled in, and it's just nice. There was a beautiful moon. It wasn't rising behind the screen um, the the way it did the, when I saw It Chapter 1, but it was just a good experience. No matter what I'll say about the movie for the next however long I talk, it was a great experience, and I wouldn't trade it in for the world. I loved it. I loved watching it. I laughed in the movie. I had a good time with the movie. I just don't really think I like the movie as a movie and especially as a, as the conclusion to this story. So before I get into any sort of, um, critical, uh, feedback on this movie, I want to talk about the good. Okay. Bill Hader is great. I've long been on record saying that once the the rumors started saying that, you know, well, Bill Hader would be great for Richie. I said, now no one else can be Richie. He has to be Richie. So when they cast him as Richie, at least I knew that no matter what happened in this movie, he would be great in it. And yes, he was great. He was Bill Hader, but he was also Bill Hader being Finn Wolfhard as an adult. It was completely believable. Um, and he every time he was on screen he brought that oh man that um, Eddie Dean quality and you know fans will know Eddie Dean um, from from the Dark Tower series but just that that non-stop that Cuthbert quality that Stephen King has a jokester template that he incorporates in his books and um, Richie is that that jokester and um Bill Hader just was able to nail this character, imbue this character, and I Richie is one of my favorite Stephen King characters. Um I, 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 I wish I do have some wishes. I wish that it was established that he was sort of like the right hand man of the group, that he was Bill's best friend of the group that should something happen to Bill, he's clearly the one to step up and take charge, Um, that he is very much sort of like the the spirit of of the group in many ways. Um, That wasn't really there or explored. Um, Clearly, they they explored the the um, Eddie-Bill, I'm sorry, the Eddie-Richie relationship, Um, and, and not so much the Richie and, well, Richie... That's the thing about Richie. That was like, he had the relationship with Bill. He had the relationship with Eddie. He had the relationship with, um, Bev. Like he was like really a centerpiece and the glue holding everybody together, though. Bill actually was the one out in the front, the leader. Um, what was I saying? But in the movie, you know, the focus was primarily on Eddie, and I understand there's only so much time that you have. and the chemistry between these two characters, both as children and as adults, and the the, the, the the children actors playing these characters, the adults, they both sets of actors did such a good job handing the baton over to the next set. So the children actors handing the baton to the character of the character over to the adults, um, it was it was flawless. And the adults, in this case, of those two characters did such an amazing job believably playing adult versions of those two characters. The the same cannot be said of any of the other characters except for those two. They did such a great job being adult versions of those children. Um, And Eddie, I can't remember the actor's name, Eddie also was great. Eddie was fantastic. Again, the the portrayal that we're getting of Eddie is different, um, and it's it's one that I understand and I enjoyed. Um, I do prefer the Eddie from the book. Um, the 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 more innocent Eddie, the sweeter Eddie. Um, this one is much more foul mouthed. It's much more like the 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 neuroses is. Um, t- uh, tuned so tightly he's like almost aggressive about it um and uh combative about it and it makes for like a fun watch and the way that he sparks with the other characters especially Richie the way they go back and forth is great it's fantastic um and their relationship like romantic relationship that was like subtext or hinted at in the book is really just pulled out um and brought to the forefront of this book uh, of of this story now, in my review of the book, my three-part review, I believe that I had predicted that in the movie, Eddie would be gay. That was my prediction. I didn't predict that Richie would be gay, um, but I still think that it falls in line with the um, the closeness that they had as characters. So though it is a deviation from the book, it's also um, honoring the book in a way as well. So... Um, the, the Richie character and the Eddie character were, were great. Great in, the book, um, in this movie. Scarsgard. It's kind of too bad, actually, to talk about him in the good section. Because I could also talk about him in the bad section, but not about him. But what about Mushietti does with him? Which is almost nothing. You know, he was so fun to watch in the first movie. And was able to do so much and was asked to do so much. We we don't g- see too many scenes with him. And for a movie that revolves around the fact that these characters are coming to face this clown, we never get to see how the clown interacts with the adults really that much. We just don't see it. Um you know, we see him taking forms, but I rather would have um Bill Skarsgård be Bill Skarsgård because, as we know, over the last few years, he went from who was Bill Skarsgård to um, cementing himself as the most iconic portrayal of this character and probably the most um, iconic horror character of a generation. I mean, it's not it, it's not an easy task to step into these shoes and... Not when Tim Curry had done it before, Tim Curry, who had scared an entire generation. But he, it's sorry to say, but he does blow Tim Curry out of the water. He's doing so much with his body, with his eyes, with his drool, with different variations of a smile, with a twitch, with a jangle, with a contortion. Like, it's such a physical, physical presence. Um, It's amazing what he's doing. And it must have been intimidating to take that role, knowing that an entire generation was terrified of what was the iconic portrayal of this character. Now, honorably, Bill Skarsgård has taken that crown. And unfortunately, he is not given that many scenes in this movie to show off, is that the term? Possibly. But to just really... Ratchet up the dread, the fear, the terror, impress us, scare us, make us laugh. Like, there's not a lot. There is a scene under the bleachers that is really well done. Um, The way that he's just hiding in the shadows and he's luring the girl in with the story. And um, it's going great until the CGI at the end of the scene. But everything about that just allowed Bill Skarsgård to be Bill Skarsgård. Um, we, we don't get enough of that, I feel. Um, and this, this is going to sound weird. We don't get enough child murder, um, in this book because, in this movie, because at this point in the story, everyone needs to be heightened because the child murders have started again, right? So I, I just, that's another, I'm going to get to some major concerns about this movie. But one of the concerns is that Derry seems like no one lives there except for these losers and some people here and there. But there's, I mean, in the first movie they did a good job at just showing the effects that this was having on the town, and we don't get that here. Um, okay, that's all the good, the good, the goods out of the way. I get to the, I gotta get to the bad later. I'm gonna talk about the actors in its own category later. But okay, here's the deal, guys. This is a really weird length. All right, it's very long, but the first half just speeds past the necessary looming dread that they feel as they prepare to return to Dairy, and this eliminates any opportunity of spending some quiet moments getting to know these adults before they arrive. Here it seems they get the phone call, and then, bam, they're in the Chinese restaurant. And from there, they're together, they're apart, they're together, they're apart. And when they're together, to me, it doesn't feel as though they have any spark. Stephen King fans know that groups of characters are powerful things. This is explicitly stated in both this and the first movie. For less diehard Stephen King fans, if you read his books enough, you see a pattern that when his core characters cast aside their own hang-ups, they form a team capable of combating whatever evils is plaguing the story. Um, Salem's Lot, The Stand, uh, Needful Things, uh, Desperation, The Regulators, Dr. Sleep, Mr. Mercedes, uh, The Outsider. These are just a few. Um, This concept is given a name by King in the pages of his Dark Tower series, a a concept um, called katet, meaning one made from many. Most Most importantly explored in these books, the Dark Tower series, the belief in katet supports the idea that when you open up your true self to others and allow yourself to depend on them, each of you within that group creates a sort of supernatural shielding and an energy charge. And to get further into it, there's a positive force for good that runs throughout King's books called the White. And the White rewards and empowers those who live by the beliefs of the Katet philosophy. It's a wonderful metaphor for humanity. It's very applicable to small towns in the suburbs that King writes of. And depicted within these pages, a Katet. Is a non-biological family of sorts, a group whose members have a deep bond. It's long been linked to the Dark Tower series, even though it, um, you know, um, <clears throat> sorry, it, it, the 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 book it has long been linked to the Dark Tower series, even though it doesn't have the same plot or character connection as Salem's Lot does, as Insomnia does. And one of those reasons is because he explores many of the same themes. And it has his most commercial and his most widely seen depiction of the concept of quartet within the Losers Club. In the first movie, the winning charm of the kids led to the formation of the childhood quartet. But after watching this movie, it looks like this was uh, lightning in a bottle, right? Or magic in a bottle. Um, The adults in Chapter 2 to me, they never gel with each other. And whatever chemistry existed with the kids' cast, it just never made it to the adults. And you could argue, as there have been some arguments out there, that this works, that speaks to the truth of adulthood, that you lose that spark, you become unrecognizable, and you know the, those relationships are rusty. But I, I believe that this argument can only be applied to the movie um, due to failure from execution of the, uh, the creator's intent, um, which is Andy Muschietti in this case. Um, I don't think that he meant for it to, to be a lack of chemistry um, within this group. Um, I think that there is something that is supposed to happen when the losers are together, that they are... That despite the fact that they are surrounded by tragedy and their shared childhood trauma... Um, there is a joy when they're together because they're at their best selves when they're together. And that's not evident here. Um, so the reason I say all this is because we don't get time with them as adults. Like I said, they get a phone call right away and then, then they're in dairy so we don't get to see their life before the phone call, after the phone call, wrestling with the, the content of the phone call. Think about how much time was spent in, in each chapter um of of it in the beginning getting to know these adults getting the, the ins and the outs we don't see any of that it is thumbnail cliff notes versions and not even cliff notes the versions um of of this it's it, it's it, it's really um a disservice to these actors many of whom are great um but the the problem here is that uh that if we don't get the time to spend with them as characters, how are we supposed to invest uh, in our relationships with them? Um, and it, 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 I, they sacrifice those character moments to service the plot, and it blows up in their faces. And it speeds through this is the thing that's crazy it speeds through the plot points, but it, it doesn't have enough significant plot to warrant the screen time. I'm fine with it being a three hour movie but just do something with that time don't just give me the adrian mellon murder you know give it to me framed through his boyfriend's perspective in the police station where we overhear homophobic jokes that show how pervasive pennywise's toxicity truly is show us the perspective of non-losers reacting to another murder in town don't give me tom rogan unless you're going to explore what a relationship like this means for an adult beverly Right? We, ultimately, what this movie is, it's a waterlogged corpse. It's heavy, but it's lifeless. And as I was going, I was talking about cotet. I mean, to this movie's detriment, these characters never form their cotet. They share screen time together, they drink beers, they trade barbs with one another, but they never fully gel into a comfortable and familiar group of, fir- of formed family. A part of this might spring from the fact that we aren't given time to truly get to know them before they're all together, so they're not fully formed as characters. And how are we supposed to believe that they function as a believable group? The lack of chemistry between the adult stars in this movie highlights the strengths of the first movie and reveals the weaknesses that are hidden within the first movie that are able to be ignored because of the strengths. What works about the first movie is that the kids are so damn charming, you're fine with it just being a hangout movie much in the way that you don't really care about the plot elements of Stranger Things. You're just fine with hanging out with the kids. The same type of magic worked in the first movie, and it's absent here. And without it, what didn't work in the first movie is fully on display in the second movie, without any of the charm to save it. Also, there's a lack of theme. Guys, what's this movie about? I'd argue that's not about anything, other than making a sequel to a successful movie and checking off some plot boxes that are found within Stephen King's original story structure. I think that some concerns that I had in the original movie came to fruition within this movie. I remember being a little concerned at the fact that the characters in the first movie never really embodied the point of childhood through Stephen King's eyes. Which is that there's a magic of childhood, and when that magic is utilized, you can conquer anything. Call it innocence, wonder, whatever you want. In this case, the book, It's the Power of the White. The first movie made it a point to streamline the reasoning for why these characters are together and provide a focus, a mission for them. The Losers Club was more of a Losers Black Ops squad, whose purpose was to kill the clown. In the book, the Losers Club exists as the Losers Club, and the Losers Club are the only ones that can kill the clown. It's a slight difference, but I think it's an important one. Because the fact that the first movie didn't explore the themes of this wonder and childhood um, magic, it leaves the second movie without a theme to grab onto or explore. These broken adults who have been cast into a world um, of success, but ultimately empty lives, return to the town they grew up in, and they have to find um, that wonder, that sense of magic that existed within them when they were children to save their adult selves. It's... A wonderful concept for adulthood, and it's not explored in this movie. Much like the the, the first movie characters, um, they interact with each other because of plot. But the heart of the story never beats in this movie, so it's ultimately a good-looking corpse on a slab. I know that there are moments in this movie where the characters do discuss having belief, and believing that you can kill a monster, but that's... In service of the characters killing a monster, not because it's exploring a a theme. It's a slight difference, but for me it's a a difference that makes this movie meaningless. And any similarities that we see to the book, it's natural because it's adapting the book, but it doesn't mean that we have to attribute any sort of um, compliment towards Muschietti and company or, 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 or argue that they're actually exploring anything. They're not. They're just... Looking at the book and 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 saying that here's what happened in the book, now here's what happened here, but just kind of taking it over here and putting it over here without really exploring what that means. Uh, here's another example. Dairy. I admire the fact that they wanted to include the Adrian Mellon component of the story. It's a shocking and revolting and a sadly true to life component of the novel. However, in the book it's it's representative of the fact that dairy is sour. The first movie managed to get this right, but it's not explored in this movie. All right? Um, In this movie, it's not about the hate crime. It's about the Pennywise kill. You know, on the surface, it's a beat-for-beat recreation of the book, right down to the armpit bite and the massive amounts of balloons. But like everything else, it's missing the point. All right? It's not about... It's not supposed to just be about the kill. This scene, the reason it has resonance is because it reveals something about this town. And that's, I don't know, the town doesn't really exist in this movie. In the first movie, you see the effect of Pennywise on the characters, the toxicity of this of this creature from the subliminal... Um, television shows that are playing throughout town, it's a really great way of just showing, you know, the the influence that it has. You don't even realize that's influencing. When I didn't even realize um, that Henry Bowers' dad at first was watching a show that had Pennywise on it. And that was a good way of showing the subliminal quality of what Pennywise does to the town people, that just living in this town, this garden is just so poison. It's going to grow poisoned fruit. We don't get that. We don't, we don't get that. And we don't see all encompassing aspects of that. We see a horrible, shocking display of violence that is not centered in any sort of theme or context that just leads to the return of Pennywise. Um, that sucks, you know? And it's funny, on, on the way up, to the driving out, I, I was thinking about the stand, um, which is re- even extra funny because this week, I was all this talk about the stand. But I was specifically with the stand. I I was I was thinking about um, how challenging it must be for um, a filmmaker of 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 that story, knowing what the ending is. All right, and I'll talk about endings. About don't worry, I'll talk about endings. But the reason I mention this is not because. I'm talking about the ending of it. I'm talking about the ending of The Stand and how challenging that must be to make a movie about The Stand and and keep that ending. Because, spoiler alert for The Stand, um, for a story that's about the battle of good versus evil, the battle, and that's in quotes, um, that does not include a violent or apocalyptic fight. It's literally about a stand. It's the characters on a mission from God tasked with walking to their villains Um, city and just saying, here we are. We're we're surrendering ourselves. We're giving ourselves over to you just to tell you to your face, we're we're not afraid of you. We're going to look you in the eyes and just say, no, we will stand. You know, there's no witchy magic power at the end. Um, You just have to stand up to it. You have to just stand. I mean, the name of the book isn't The Fight it's the stand. I mean, and, and, and the reason that I say this, it's not because It Chapter 2 keeps making these jokes about the ending. It's, it's just, and let me be clear, I think the ending to The Stand is exactly what it should be. But because that exemplifies the demonstration of Quartet that's so sorely lacking in this movie. That's why the losers in the book are so important. It's not because they're there to kill the clown, but their union is a repudiation of that sour, poisoned humanity that exists all around them. The poisoned humanity that was existing within Las Vegas when, v- when Flagg was controlling that. All right, And a quartet walked to them and said no. And the existence of the Losers Club within Derry, Maine is a repudiation. And it's them constantly looking at this sour town and saying no. And without the display of Derry's true nature and how poisoned it is, the importance of the Losers Club is lessened. Alright, let's talk about the scares, or the lack of. Alright? In film criticism, there's there's two areas that I believe it's just downright difficult to be objective. One is comedy, and two is horror. I, in some cases it's just all about subjectivity. And then with horror and comedy, it's really hard to deassociate yourself from the emotions that drive horror and humor, all right? If you are wired a certain way, you might like the weirdest humor that nobody else likes. For instance, about five years back, we got that that Too Many Cooks uh, video, all right? Listen, that shit's not for everybody, right? If it's not for you, there's no way for me to explain to you why it's funny. And the same thing with horror. I know that people are gonna see this movie and they're gonna jump and they're gonna scream and they're gonna be afraid just thinking of the CGI teeth and the elongated monsters that wobble around in the dark for nearly three hours. Look, if you find that stuff scary, good for you. I can't rationalize away any sensation that you felt while watching this movie. And I wouldn't wanna, I wouldn't wanna take away from you. All I wanna do is explain why I found it to be unfrightening for me. And more importantly, why that's probably its biggest failure. Speaking of Too Many Cooks, by the way, that video was more terrifying, dread-filled, and nightmare-inducing than anything within this movie. Again, when it comes to horror, subjectivity reigns supreme. I mean, good lord, there's a generation that is currently growing up that doesn't find The Exorcist to be scary. Anyway, so when I was watching this movie, I thought to myself, what was the point of making this? I can tell you what the point was of King's novel. He wrote a thesis of horror, a summation of all the things that inspired him within the genre that anointed him its master, and deftly wove it into the cycle of growing up and growing old. It was a celebration and an examination of the movies and books that made him who he was, the garden whose fruits nourished him until he could build his own garden." Teenage Werewolf, The Mummy, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Lovecraftian Horror, Outer Space Threats, Small Town Horror, all of it, it was all meaningful and personal to the author. So when he wanted the scares to come, on some level, it was coming from a personal place. In the book, you get little flourishes, like Ben realizing that the balloons were floating in the opposite direction of the wind. And here, you get Ben being chased through the school hallways by a CGI Bev with fire hair so poorly rendered she might as well have been Hades from Hercules. If you find that scary, again, I don't want to take that away from you, but that's a deeply uninspired and poorly imagined attempt at fright. On a side note, I've always hated that haiku, from the first time I read that book in sixth grade. At least in the book, it means something because it came from a place of childhood sincerity, so its earnestness is a reflection of the purity of childhood, and that is why it's so cherished by its characters. But here, it's repeated so heavy-handedly by a flaming-headed Bev and literally shouted out loud as a Hail Mary in the final minutes of the movie so he could be saved by the recipient of the poem back to the scares. If you like CG, you're in luck because you're getting it in spades. You're getting CGI fortune cookie monsters. You're getting CGI lepers. You're getting CGI naked witch women. You're getting CGI flaming-headed Bev. You're getting CGI toothy Pennywise. You're getting CGI Paul Bunyan. You're getting so much CGI, it might as well be a modern day remake of a classic Disney cartoon. Strangely enough, the first trailer for the movie was basically a long look at the Bev tea scene with Mrs. Kirsch which, until it concludes with a towering giant naked monster which chasing after Bev, is the exact opposite of the CGI-heavy scares that bog down the rest of this movie. Like the source material, the unease comes from the growing sense of danger, the long pauses, the needle skips, when Mrs. Kirsch is out of sight, the slight glimpse of a wound on her chest, the increase of her strangely accented pronunciations. It's the most unease that I I felt in this movie, and it's done without relying on effects. Of course, like I said, it's all squandered when she comes bursting out of the darkness. And what a choice. I mean, the original has her father dressed as Mrs. Kirsch, and the image is one that not only sticks with the viewer, but lands with Beverly because her genesis of fear isn't some naked monster witch-woman but the overly possessive, abusive, inappropriate, and warped attention of her father. And to not give us that, but to give us a generic CGI witch woman shows a complete misunderstanding of what makes the book work. Okay. So, let's talk about the ending. Guys, I feel bad for Mushietti. How do you do this ending? I've been thinking about this... You know, and I explained this to my wife because we were talking about the ending, and she basically said that it was the ending. It was an entire Punky Brewster episode. Um, and we looked at it, and yes, that's what this is. The ending of this movie is bad. It's bad. Um, unfortunately, it's bad. But it, I got to give them credit because they tried some, at least some level of metaphysics here. Um, But it's just, it's so watered down. I don't like what they did with the ritual of Chud by bringing in the Native Americans. It's a weird, stereotypical way to bring them in as this shamanistic group that has a secret uh, war with an ancient demon. Like, it's so convenient. It's shoddy storytelling, maybe a little offensive. I don't know. Um, I do not like that component. I love in the book with the ritual of Chud. It came from them going to the library, doing it themselves, making their own, uh, you know, hot box in the ground, getting their own visions. And what's great about that is that they're being dumbass kids, being really, really dangerous. All right? So even without the supernatural component, there was such a truth to that that again, speaks to the childhood wonder that allows these characters to combat the ancient evil. It's because of the childhood wonder um, of being children, which includes doing dumbass things. By harnessing that, they're able to confront and then ultimately combat and then conquer this creature that comes from elsewhere. So, of course, the book famously has the macroverse, Maturin, though he's not called Maturin, but the turtle, um, the the... the the space battle, where it's in its universe, but it's on the outside of the universe. It has the deadlights. Um, it has a giant cavern underneath um, the town this is, that's wrapped in spider webs, and you have to enter through a little small fairy tale door there. There's just so much weird stuff, and if you are lost in the deadlights, your body can die, but you're just, consciousness is trapped forever much like the jaunt that's a terrifying um prospect all that's just gone all of it's just gone and and you get you get a spider but it's a cgi spider hybrid it looks like the rock at the end of the mummy returns smashing his way through um you know the, the the bowels of dairy it it it's absurd it's an absurd ending, um, and they just defeat it with the same lesson that they learned the first time around., um, and my wife started laughing, and I started laughing at the end, um because she's like, this is they're gonna bully him to death, and that's all that happened. They just they just bullied him to death and it was that little whiny little thing, um and so i I don't know. I mean all the jokes about the endings, endings, talking about endings. Um, and how Bill Denbrough doesn't know how to conclude a book. Is that a acknowledgement that they didn't have a good ending? Was Were they trying to get ahead of it? I certainly hope that they weren't kind of throwing shade at Stephen King. That would not be cool. Um, but yeah, for them to talk about endings so much and then deliver this ending, I mean, come on, guys. Let's not, all right? Let's just not. Um, it. It was really... Too bad. I mean, I could have driven, literally driven away because I was in a car watching this movie. I literally could have driven away um, as soon as they went down. And that's the part I was excited for the most. I wanted to see something incredibly weird and challenging, but in but we don't get that. We got Nightmare on Elm Street. We got a Nightmare on Elm Street ending where Pennywise, that's, that's not another thing. Like, his power, it's just... And I, there's an acknowledgement there because Nightmare on Elm Street is playing... In one of the flashbacks. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's nothing against Freddy Krueger or Wes Craven or Robert Englund or, or Nightmare on Elm Street. I love the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but the the set pieces at the end with um, the bathroom stall and Ben being buried and all this weird shit, like, it it did not feel like a Stephen King movie based on one of his books. It felt like a Freddy Krueger ripoff. Um, so that just kind of sucked. Now let's talk about the characters. Let's talk about Bev. Now, Sophia Lillis, I believe, and the Bev character was the breakout star of the first movie. And immediately upon, much like Bill Hader, the internet said, yo, we want Chastain. And I was like, okay, now if we don't get Chastain, then I'm not going to like whoever they do cast. And they got Jessica Chastain. I was like, yes, this is great. She's going to be awesome. Um, but she's not given much to do. Now, again, going back to time... Significant time was spent on in the, um, in the first one of, of, Be- of Bev's plight, her outsider status among the girls in town, her increasing fear of her father, the fear of growing out of girlhood into womanhood. And in chapter two, Bev as a character's place as the story begins reflects the actualization of these fears, but the movie never allows Jessica Chastain as an actress to actually explore these themes. Rather than recreate the time spent with the character, Muschietti recreates a superficial scare and falls prey to sequelitis, which is to take the thing that people liked or talked about in the first one and make it bigger. In this case, it's the blood in the bathroom scene. What occurs here is the bathroom stalls flooded with blood. Again, which makes you say, what's the point? It's an example of misunderstanding what people liked about the first one and a misunderstanding of what's important of this character. Look, her introduction starts off with her beating at the hands of and ultimately beating of her husband. Again, if more time was spent with the losers before they returned to Derry, then we would get more of a sense of her personal life, of her professional highs and her marital lows. Here we get none of that. We just get a quick and brutal attack that's quickly concluded and never spoken of again. The book builds up Bev as a professionally successful businesswoman who, despite her um, strength in the fashion industry, is powerless and submissive to an abusive, rapey, controlling psychopath. We see more examples of their dynamic on display, the way in which he degrades her, the excuses she makes, the indignity she endures until she has to make a choice between, between return to her childhood home to face her childhood monster or remain in this life with her current monster. The abuse she suffers during this scene is murderous, animalistic, and something out of a horror novel. It's brutal. It takes everything out of adult Bev, but she's able to conquer the beast because of the strength lay dormant inside her. In this moment, the Bev from Derry, the gunslinger, begins to wake up. In the movie, we don't get any of that. We don't see the highs and lows of her adulthood. We don't see her relationship with Tom. We don't see her prior abuses, manipulations, or attacks. Um, To see the life that she'd been living that allows the victory over Tom as a triumphant moment, you know? And then as an adult in town, she doesn't have anything to do. She is purely the object of affection of Bill. I'm going to get to that in a second. And Ben. Okay, so let's talk about Bill. He's kind of a dick. In the book, he's compared to JFK. Audra plays a much bigger role as well. She becomes the damsel in distress. So, yes, she does. But at least thematically, in his attempts to rescue her from the monster's clutches, Bill is fighting for his future. And because the conclusion takes on a fairy tale quality, the trope kind of works to this benefit. Anyway, Audra is always with Bill, even when she's not, even when Bill and Bev are drawn to each other. Both the book and the 1990 miniseries concludes with Bill's final bike ride through Derry to use the last of the magic within him to awaken his wife. It's horrendously rendered in the miniseries, but in the book, it's sweeping, gorgeous, thrilling, exhilarating, and lovely. Here, Audra is introduced, presented as slightly naggy, insulted by Bill and then completely excised from the movie. And in her absence, Bill becomes a much less sympathetic character than his novel counterpart due to the fact that he even forgets that he has a wife and just kind of goes after Bev. It's gross. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I was excited about McAvoy. I like him as an actor. I wanted him to do well. I thought that he would. He didn't. And even in in the movie, he doesn't really function as the group's leader. Like, ah, oh, Ben, Bill, we need you. But do you? Really? Is he really gelling? Is he really bringing you all together? Is he really out there leading? No. He does a good stutter, though. But no, you know what he's doing? He's shaking down neighborhood kids. That's another thing. Look, so when we first meet that kid in the Chinese movie theater, and it's the Richie gag, that's funny. <laughs> but I don't know if the movie knows that every time we see him from that point forward, it's unintentionally funny. Because I think that what's played as sincere, intense fear and protection, you know, Bill's like shaking this kid because it's reminding him of Georgie. You know, you need to leave town. It just looks like this kid. I want to see a movie through this kid's eyes of how every adult in the town just goes up to him and, and just shakes him. You know, like that that woman in Airplane when there's just a line of people like walking up to her and smacking her and shaking her. That's what happens to this poor kid. It's awful. Now, let's talk about Mike. Mike didn't have much of a character in chapter one, and he's more of an unhinged character in the sequel. Now and I don't like this choice. I like the stoicism of Mike in the book and in the 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 miniseries. You know, I, I think that in the miniseries played by Tim Reed, he was wonderfully portrayed. Um you know, he brings the weight of, of having lived in Derry with quiet intensity, selfless loneliness without buckling under the weight of insanity from living with the unspeakable knowledge of what existed below the ground. In this movie, we have an obsessed Mike who's more broken than either the book or the movie, and I think that his character suffers from that. I don't like the whole deal with the Indians, like it, like I said. Um, you know, I I think that, that, that it shows the strength and the bravery of Mike for staying there, and of all the losers... He's the one that I think was in most danger simply because of his skin color living in this town um, for all of his his life. And, um, you know, in the book and even in the movie, we see his (sighs) sacrifice that while the others go off and have successful lives and and wealth, he is denied that. Um, He is robbed of that that his 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 sacrifice has not yielded him financial reward the way that it the the that you know anti ka is rewarding the the other um losers for leaving and tempting them to stay in this world so that they don't come back um that that doesn't i think that that's lacking here also the library was a place of good in the book, but in the first movie. It was scary, so why is Mike the librarian? Why is he living here? You know, I mean, the the movie is recreating scenes on the surface because that's how it was in the book, but like, it just doesn't mean anything. It's pointless. Okay, let's talk about Eddie. Like, I mentioned Eddie. Eddie was great. I really enjoyed Eddie. I didn't like his scene with the mother um, in this, with the leper. Again, it felt like a Nightmare on Elm Street thing. Um, His scenes were very funny. Great portrayal. At times, maybe a little too jokey. He gets stabbed through the face and it's played for laughs. I think that the, there was a misunderstanding of the humor in this movie. Eddie was great. Let's talk about Ben. He had three identifiable traits as a child. He liked new kids on the block, he had a crush on Bev, and he was fat. As an adult, since he's not fat, doesn't listen to new kids, his only trait is that he keeps looking at Bev. He's so bland in this movie, he, he provides nothing. Um, and that's all I get, like, and then there was, um, Henry Bowers. He comes back, but it's, he doesn't, he's, he doesn't impact the story in the book. The whole point is that he does negatively impact. He does have an effect. He puts Mike in the hospital. Mike almost dies by the hands of Henry and in the hospital. When again, the influence of Derry takes its control and he's almost killed and it shows that they are down two members and eddie is hurt again um and they have to go into the sewers at a major disadvantage so there's all this tension of as adults if they don't have the power of seven and they're down to the power of five are they do we even have to stand, stand a chance like that's not there that's not there so that sucks okay Conclusion. There are times when a movie looks like what it could have been, and there's times when it looks like the realization of King's novel. But in the end, I think that's like this. And I apologize I apologize if I've used this metaphor before. I realize that any time it looked like it's addressing the themes of the book, the innate humanity of dairy, the magic of childhood, etc. Sorry, the innate inhumanity. Did I say humanity? The innate inhumanity of dairy, the magic of childhood childhood trauma impacting our adult selves. It's not actively trying to explore the themes. It only resembles what we know because it's adapting the book. So of course those points are going to flash across the the screen, but only flash, never glow with steady light. Look, I can draw a cheeseburger, and you can look at the picture and tell it's a cheeseburger. It might even look exactly like a cheeseburger, but you can't eat the picture. It's not going to nourish you. That's how I felt about this movie. It was all surface level recreation and nothing else. So guys, that's that. Um, Next to me right now is Stephen King's newest book, The Institute. So the next week's episode, I'm going to be reviewing Stephen King's The Institute and I will have emails, um, your emails about your review and your thoughts about It Chapter 2. So if you have thoughts, any disagreements with me, or anything that you agree with me about this this particular movie, write in at StephenKingCast at yahoo.com. Okay, guys, it's getting late. I got to bounce. Um, but may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.